Hi everybody and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm your host Samantha Thomas and today I'll be talking to Dr. Alan Beck, Professor of Animal Ecology and Director for the Center for the Human-Animal Bond at Purdue. People have kept pets throughout human history. Last week we talked about the ways animals can improve health as featured in the recent news and today we'll discuss more about the psychological and physical benefits of pet ownership. From improving cardiovascular health to holding the attention of Alzheimer's patients, the human-animal bond is a powerful source of well-being. Let's let Dr. Beck introduce himself and tell us a little bit about the Center for the Human-Animal Bond. Now, the background is, is uh, perhaps typical in that it was unplanned with lots of variation. Uh, I'm an old uh, Brooklyn kid, and like anybody from uh, Brooklyn when I was younger, tried to get out after a while, uh, went as far as California, uh, did a master, ever did a Brooklyn College undergraduate, then did a master's in, in fire ecology, the effects of fire on plants and animal populations. Uh, got interested in, in nature uh, by becoming a, during the summers being a nature counselor. Um, and then when I finished my, my master's, I thought, well, now that I've looked at deer and rodents and all that, I would go up the food chain, and I was going to study wolves. Um, and my major professor in California knew, remembered a, 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 an army buddy who was doing uh, work at Johns Hopkins, although I had to track him down. And the School of Public Health had a wonderful, and still does, had a wonderful commitment to understanding even the roots of public health and ecology. So the idea of doing a, a wolf study in a, in a School of Public Health was not a an unreasonable thing to do. But I got a, a handwritten letter from my major professor who said that instead of studying wolves, if I could do something useful, more useful, in terms of human health, uh, I could be fully funded. So I studied the stray dogs of Baltimore and pretended they were wolves. And so I did a, so that's how I sort of got into the uh, domestic animal uh, world, uh, with a book called The Ecology of Stray Dogs. Uh, and then did a, uh, some work in, in the ecology area with, with Barry Common, at that time the world's most famous ecologist. Um, and looking at the problems animals cause for people, mainly, you know, bite epidemiology and, and diseases from animals. Uh, spent five years in the New York Health Department uh, running animals. And then that's just about the time, 1980, uh, when the University of Pennsylvania got the, was getting this super duper grant to set up the first center to look at what people and animals are doing together. <laughs> Veterinary schools are looking at animals, obviously, medical schools are looking at people. And so I thought that's a chance for me to get back to academics. Uh, and so we started the first center to study human-animal interaction. <laughs> Spent a pen, a 10 years at Penn. And then in 1990, came here at Purdue, which actually was the second center. Um, and now about half of all veterinary schools have various centers or units or, or various kinds of commitments to study about what is going on with animals together, more than just diseases. Because uh, from the very beginning, it was apparent that there's uh, relationships with animals that are really much more than just simple psychological, but really had health benefits. I was at Penn at the time that Erica Friedman and my collaborator on several books, Aaron Katcher, showed that people who 
owned animals at the time of a heart attack had a significantly longer uh, chance of being alive one year later. And one year survival was a very common measure in the heart attacks level. Um, and so there started to be real data that our relationship with animals was more than just cutesy, was more than just economic, um, but actually had some part of the human experience. Just like good diet and exercise and these other things are are now being recognized as being more than just trivial fun things to, to think about. Um, and so for the last really 20, 30 years now, I've been looking at our relationship with animals more, not only, not exclusively, but more on the health benefits rather than the other aspects of it. Interesting in, in terms of uh, looking at the human thing, and also some of the edges of the relationship, like fish and so on, things that are a little less obvious than just dogs. Uh, so that's what I do for a living. So you already touched on a lot of the topics I want to talk about, but maybe we can start by kind of just starting with the physiological response to the presence of um, your pet. What what happens well, to you know, people's I, bodies? You know, we were so when I was at Penn, we started but we're doing interview studies, and we were looking at these people, especially if we would talk to them, they would bring their animal back into the room, and then talk to them again, and it was very obvious just from looking at these people, they were more relaxed in the presence of the animals. Um, their behavior changed, their dialogue, their conversation with, with us and the animals was very, uh, very uh, uh, different. Uh, I would talk to you, how it's nice to see you, Ms. Fisher, but if my dog was there, he's loading, you would be a total drop in, in, in voice, volume, pitch. Um, and so, and facial expressions were much more relaxing. So we thought, are these people really more relaxed? And that's where we got the idea of, of doing blood pressure studies. And sure enough, if you uh, pet an animal, interact with an animal, uh, even talk to an animal, you actually get a, a, a reduction, a relaxation effect, a reduction in, in, in blood pressure, even though just talking usually raises blood pressure. It's a standard moment of way of, of causing some, you know, some increase in blood pressure because it's a certain kind of anxiety in basic conversation. You're thinking, you're processing, you're worrying about being assessed. And yet it was very relaxing with, with, with animals. So that's how we, we so, so it was a real physiological response, more than just the behavioral response the, and, and so on. So that's how we, we sort of got started. And then, of course, that's about the same time the Delta Society was starting out on the board there, where, where animals are being used in a, a variety of therapeutic environments. Uh, especially for older people, if you consider growing older, the need for therapeutic intervention, but it's true, it is a disease of sorts. Uh, but also these more you know, other specific therapeutic interventions. Um, so that's how we sort of got started, and then more and more people, I mean, it's a real obvious bandwagon. By uh, 1987, we were part of a, a special consensus conference at the National Institutes of Health. And there's actually uh, an actual document that came out that there really are health benefits to our relationship with animals. It became a legitimate area of study, a legitimate area for uh, grant support, and, and, and so on. Uh, I suppose one of the, the most interesting or recent advance is that 
people are looking at the relationship from the animal's point of view as well. Because to be a bond, it should be neutral. <laughs> sure. Uh, and sure enough, there really are. Uh, first of all, I mean, I have a drop in blood pressure when I pet my dog. The dog experiences a bradycardia, which is a, a, a reduction in heart rate. But obviously also a reflection of a relaxation effect. Hmm. Um, you can see this in, in horses. We grew a horse, which can actually feel the heart rate. Um, and so, and now is the, the new generation is looking at physiological measures, not just blood pressure. Um, uh, oxytocin, the hormone for relaxation, uh, cholesterol levels, and sure enough, you get an oxytocin release when you pet a dog, and the dog gets it too. So, uh, and it's not surprising, I suppose. Uh, a lot of my later work is, is to why this should happen. There's now enough evidence to show that there is a health benefit. There's even epidemiologic evidence uh, that goes far beyond the the original heart attack studies. Um, so what's, why, how, what is the mechanism that's been one of my more uh, recent interests? And, and by mechanism, do you mean the psychological process that... Yeah, yeah. Why should our relationship with animals have such a health effect? Sure. Um, do you have ideas? Yeah, only lots of ideas. Uh, the, uh, because it's very universal. It's not just a, a, a Western society invention. Hmm. Uh, almost... Just about virtually almost every culture throughout at least recorded history, uh, or at least recent history, uh, has had a, a pattern of pet ownership. Uh, it may be different species, it may play different roles. It seems to evolve more to what we do as the society becomes more like us with, with discretionary income, discretionary time. Uh, and what I think, it, what, we, what we think is happening is one, uh, we are pre-COVID to care about animals that look that are cute, have big eyes, big heads. And if you Conrad Lorenz pointed out that all early uh, newborn mammals and birds have that same similar scheme and it's probably an inborn uh, shared uh, releaser not to eat your babies. Uh, not, it actually does uh, you know, lessen aggression. So we're, uh, we, we, all, we find cuteness in, in the, the infantile form. And what have we done by domestication? By constantly selecting the tame of all our domestic animals. We ended up with animals that tend to maintain much of their juvenile behavior and physical characteristics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the adult dog is a puppy wolf. Uh, and with that, little packaging comes the nice releasers of nurturing and care. So we're already ready to be caregivers and the animals are, are all geared up for it. Uh, we are social animals that are attracted to and care about nature. Because let's face it, an, uh, humans who weren't really keenly aware of nature probably didn't survive. If you, if you couldn't pay attention to which animals are safe and which aren't, which plants are safety, which aren't, you're not really going to be part of your gene pool over the next million years. Uh, so we're, we're fascinated by nature, and we, we do this. We seek out contact with nature. More people go to zoos every year than all spectator sports combined. Mm-hmm. And we, we do this uh, not because we want to be zoologists, but because we actually enjoy uh, 
sitting out to be in the presence of nature. You know, if, if, a, if a restaurant doesn't have space for an aquarium or plants, they'll put in plastic plants. And there's been lots of data that show that looking at nature actually has health benefits, surgery recoveries and all that. Well, our animals are nature on demand, our domestic animals, our pets. Uh, so that's another fascination. And probably the major reason is that animals offer some of the same social support that people get. We know that human social support is a major predictor of health. Uh, people who don't have a good relationship with other people don't do as well. We seek out each other's company uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, if you look at what we do with people, uh, obviously we, we, we hate loneliness, so we hang out with other people. Uh, we love to think and talk out loud when we speak to each other. Uh, we find comfort in, in touch, and all cultures have a hug and, and kissing and holding, shaking hands. Uh, we need a focus of attention, because if you can keep your focus in the present, uh, you're much less stressed. The stress is worrying about the past or worrying about the future. So we do things together, or the movies together, we do things to keep us in the present. Uh, we obviously exercise, we find humor to each other, uh, we, and that is all, that's what we do with our dogs. Uh, when people come home to a, an animal, they feel less lonely, because even though they don't expect the dog or cat to be your, their protector, it's telling them that the, that the environment is safe. Uh, we love talking. 97% of people talk to their dogs and cats. Uh, actually, 3% lie. We actually never did find anybody who didn't talk to their dogs and cats. But you're not allowed to say 100% in science. Um, so we do that. And not only, I mean, it's not just talking to the animal. There's a belief that the animal at least has some interest in some understanding of what you're saying, if not word by word, but, you know, at least by mood. Uh, so, so talk more about, about that. How, how successful are people in communicating with their pets, and is there evidence that the communication is valid? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, one, obviously, the fact that we get trained animals as well as we can shows a certain amount of communication. Uh, but what, what is fascinating about dogs especially, and maybe true some of the other animals are not as well studied, is that, yes, we obviously can read dog very well, people can, you know, dog behaviorists and animal behaviorists. Um, can address you know, issues just by looking at the animal and suggesting all things. What has been really appreciated, though, in the last five or ten years is that the dog has spent so much time with us, you know, uh, that it has been inadvertently selected for, as an animal who can read us. <laughs> uh, so, if I'm with a dog, a naive dog, I'm not talking about training and start looking where I drop something, or maybe there's food, the dog will look where I'm looking. No other animal will do that. Mm. By point, it knows where I'm pointing. Dogs can actually see which way you're looking, even from videos. Um, so there's almost a theory of mind there. It knows what you're thinking. So that's how uh, interaction, how real the interaction has, has been. Um, they remember where you put things and so on, and just like we do, so there's a very real uh, communication. Uh, so it's not as crazy as it sounds that we talk about dogs and we take walks with them and so on. And that's one of the other things that encourages exercise. Uh, 
but it's, it is a true uh, interaction, uh, and that's appreciated. So, so when we say, oh, if you ask the average person, what role does the animal, does the dog, or cat play in your role in your life? Uh, they'll say, oh, it's a member of the family, uh, and it's not because this person is so biologically naive that they don't know that they're different species. Uh, it's because it's the best metaphor we have for the relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the dog is, is a, a, a member of the family, and we are apparently a member of their family. Probably with the same you know, level of, of understanding as opposed to confusion. Uh, uh, because it's not enough to say, it's just my dog. Just like if there's a very favorite person in your life, and you want to, especially if a young person, they'll start thinking you as Aunt Laurie, as opposed to my friend Laurie, because they want to elevate your importance in their life, because you deserve it. And that's just what we do with our dogs. We elevate their importance, and the relationship shows. Um, so, kind of just looking through your work and, and others, it looks like one of the most important places for pets are in vulnerable populations. I mean, I see the, you know, people with chronic pain, veterans, um, autistic children, Alzheimer's patients, um, prisoners. Uh, it, can you can you talk a little bit about how how important a pet can be for people well, that? That is what happens. You know, it's uh, what, what what people finally realized is that. Pets in, in therapeutic environments are basically serving the same roles they are in non-therapeutic environments. Uh, it's not as if it's a drug that, that acts differently. Uh, and what we're doing is we're, we're attracting, we realize that some of these roles, like mitigating loneliness, you know, focus of attention, focus of comfort and touch, uh, is particularly important in many environments. So there it's therapeutic. You know, it's like it's nothing more than that way what you get anyway, but since it's particularly in need. So that's why a lot of the early work was with older people. Uh, not only because all, all, a lot of the older people are in one place to study, which makes it easier, but the perception, and perhaps a very legitimate perception, that these people are touched deprived, are more lonely. Uh, and so a lot of the early work was done in nursing homes and so on. Uh, I do some work with Alzheimer's patients or fish. Uh, so yeah, and, and it's just recognizing that. Uh, now, like this activity of, of using animals, especially dogs, with people with PTSD, which is not only a, a military issue, but more PTSD is actually reported in women from abuse and so on, but also obviously at the moment, a lot of interest in, in military-related PTSD. Uh, well, we know that you really can't start giving good therapy until the person is calm enough to listen, as opposed to constantly thinking about the past, which is what a lot of PTSD is. Uh, and one of the best ways of, as I said, a focus of attention, keeping them in the present, is our inborn fascination with animals, uh, our inborn happiness that we're providing something useful, even if it's just a family on the hat, on the head, or a walk, or so on. So that's why this, it becomes a sort of obvious thing to do with people who need to be kept in the present for therapy, such as PTSD. Uh, our studies with, with Alzheimer's patients, it's because Alzheimer's patients 
in nursing facilities, uh, lose weight significantly. They're too agitated, they don't have the feedback for, for being hungry, and they don't eat. Uh, not that they're, they're fasting, they just they forget to eat, they knock it down, they, they're, and most nursing facilities actually sort of almost force feed high nutrient stuff if you don't eat at least half of what's on the plate. Well, we found out, we weighed everything, sure enough, if you put just plain fish tanks in uh, where Alzheimer's units are, it holds their attention. Nothing else holds uh, uh, the attention of the Alzheimer's patient. Not lights, not television, nothing. Uh, because they don't have enough memory to remember what they just look at. Uh, but remember, we're inborn to be interested in nature. And that inborn nature, that biophilia hypothesis, survives dementia. It's so inborn, it, dementia doesn't wipe it out. And so we found that, that the Alzheimer uh, resident will sit and watch at least the fish tank. And if there's food in front of you, they're less agitated, they eat. Because food in front of you, if you're not agitated, you eat. It's, we see this on, news, on, on airplanes all the time. You're not hungry, what else the hell are you going to do? <laughs> um, and, and sure enough, they're actually less agitated. It would just, and we're not, we're not sitting the person down, you can't do that. And just say, look at the fish tank. It's just have them in the room. And sure enough, they find the fish tank, they, they calm down, they eat, and we actually, you know, I can send you still, we have three articles now in, in different ways, the significant increase in, in, uh, in weight, simply because they're less agitated. The only way they were less agitated is that they had a fish, fish tanks. And these are standard goldfish, but they're in special tanks that you can't knock over, you can't get in, certain about health and safety when you're dealing with hospitalized patients. Um, so, I mean, that's a therapeutic event where the fish tank is doing exactly what it does in your living room. Sits there and looks adorable. Uh, but in this environment, it's particularly therapeutic. That's what, what much of that therapy is. How about, um, how about children? How about developing children, especially with um, developmental disorders? Oh, uh, gosh, uh, yeah, and from the very beginning, uh, especially like Gail Nelson, who's one of the earliest people to work in this area, who work from where the where the wild things are, uh, she felt that, that that children play a or animals play a very special role in child development. Uh, it, it's one of the few times, like with older people, where the child can be a nurturer, even if it's just after eating the fish or you know, walking the dog. And for boy children in our culture, that's particularly important because we don't have any nurture games for boys. Girls are willing to play house and tea party and feed the, the dolls and play mommy. Boys just want to kill each other. Uh, except taking care of animals is gender free. We don't, we may think of nurses and elementary school teachers as mommy's work, as things that, that mommies do, ladies, women. Uh, we don't think of farmers or people who take care of animals as one gender audience. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, in, and it's so, and in our culture, it's not sissy work to take care of an animal, as opposed to having to take care of a younger brother or sister. That is mommy's work. Uh, so, it, it plays a very important role in child development, in, in both socializing, and it also 
plays the role of socializing among themselves. So that's children of animal owners seem to get along. They, they understand maybe nonverbal communication a little bit better. And there actually is data to show with good match controls that uh, child owning uh, and animal owning families with children, the, ch the children actually do better in terms of grades, in terms of positive activities after school and so on. And that's been done in Germany, Netherlands, and the United States, uh, and England. This is not just a U.S. phenomenon. Uh, so that's, you know, very important. And I'm just finishing up with uh, Maggie O'Hare, I sent some of this material through. We had an NIH grant. Remember, now NIH is finally realizing that animals have a role, a legitimate role in science. Uh, we had a, an NIH grant we just completed. Uh, and Maggie did the work actually in Australia because it was just easier to work. She had a full right to be there and uh, it, the Australian schools are a little easier to work with. Uh, there they were very interested in mainstreaming uh, autism spectrum disorder children. And autistic children in, in, in regular classrooms suffer a lot of bullying. They're just not, you know, kids are kids. Uh, they often are, uh, because of their own insecurities, are very, you know, cruel to people who are a little off the typical developing track. Um, and so it was, it, it was, it's really kind of hard on the autistic, uh, autistic child, uh, even though they're just as bright or just, you know, they're, they're not behaving particularly bad. It's just that kids are intolerable, intolerant. Uh, well, but if they do something that both agree is good and important, and free of any kind of disability, then they get together and they work together and that socializes it. And we showed that just having a guinea pig care folk, uh, programs was significantly better than toy programs and other kinds of activities. And they so socialized the typically developed child and the autism spectrum disorder child that it made the whole mainstreaming of the autistic child uh, more efficient, healthier, everybody did better. And of course, it's also good for the typically developing child. Notice I'm not saying normal. It's not just a normal child. The typically developing child uh, to be a better human being, too, which is not the worst thing in the world. Uh, so there we use just guinea pigs. Because again, it's a universal thing that. Uh, Children love to care for, and guinea pigs really do release a lot of that nurturing behavior. Cute squeak, adorable face, uh, just about a big enough size to pet without hurting, and almost never bite, and never cause allergies. You know, it's God's gift to uh, child development. Uh, so that would be an example of, for, for children. And more and more people are realizing uh, that animals do play this role. And if they do, actually, there's a lot of... Uh, marketing data. There's no official census of animal ownership, but there's a lot of marketing data. Uh, one of the more common reasons that people want a dog and cat is because they think it's good for their children. Mm -hmm. In fact, people who have a child, families that have a child over six and under 14, they're about four times more likely to have an animal, a dog or a cat. Um, and that's why married people have more animals than non-married people. You see, that's, and the other myth is that animals are because, because you're 
a terrible person, nobody wants to be with you, so you're, you have an animal. You know, you hate everybody else, you're suffering misanthrope. The truth of the matter is, animals are much more common in families that have other adults and have other children. Oh, that's interesting. So I want to circle back to a couple points that I don't think we discussed. Um, it, when, when a pet is introduced to a family, sometimes it, um, it's meant to form a bond with little Jane, right? You buy little Jane a puppy for Christmas, um, but that doesn't always happen. And I wonder if there's um, there are ideas about how how and why bonds form between a certain person and the animal. Um, well, we we did some studies, uh, uh, and there's actually a lot of work. Gary Koenig has done a lot of work in this. And uh, why people relinquish the animals to shelters. Now, we, I mean, yes, there's crazy people who do animal abuse, and that's a different issue. Uh, but, and it turns out that, that people who uh, have been, had some veterinary care or have, had more reasons than had their ownership been reinforced, that's through a pediatrician, through a family, so, uh, are less likely to surrender their animals. So there's a lot of work trying to understand why animals are surrendered, and how to solve that problem. Um, and it, it's by now, it's not limited to our relationship with animals. So remember, uh, uh, look, at, look at the level of, of child abuse, child, you know, is very, very high. Uh, half of all marriages are divorced. I mean, we're still struggling on what it is to hold bonds with, with other things. Um, but then there's a lot of sort of appreciation now that we should... Uh, uh, you know, help people better understand why animals are, are surrendered. And it's it's been a long time in studying because the humane movement just assumed there was an overpopulation, which is not the case. Uh, so, in fact, there's still a demand for young animals. That's, that's not the, the issue, in fact. Uh, many animal shelters are actually have to buy or have animals imported to them to have enough for adoption. But there, it's survivorship in the, in, the, in the home that's important. Uh, and that's what we're, we're looking at. So uh, the more uh, you can address behavior problems, uh, the more you can address very basic veterinary problems, the more likely the animals stay in, in, in people's homes. Um, for the longest time, we, uh, people, it's bad about people, we made societies we, we decry giving animals as gifts assuming that this is a terrible thing to do. Turns out that gifted animals stay in people's homes much longer than uh, uh, animals that are purchased because, well, there may be all kinds of reasons to association with first game to whatever it is. Uh, but they actually stay in people's homes. Uh, they decry animal shelters versus pet shops. Pet shop animals stay in people's homes much longer than animal shelters animals. Uh, again, so one of those, what you, and, and again, Remember, animal shelter animals are in the shelter for a reason. So just because they're adopted doesn't mean that reasons went disappeared. Uh, you know, they like behavior problems. Uh, so uh, we're, we're, there's a lot of work on trying to understand how to uh, make the experience better. And in fact, there has been a steady uh, decrease in the numbers of animals in animal shelters. Uh, to a point that, as I said, there are places where animals, especially like from the south, are being transported to the north to have enough animals and shelters. Uh, so, uh, but like everything we do, there's good and bad. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, the number one thing that's important that people doesn't have a, a some feedback loop, uh, that's a, a problem uh, as well. I mean, we all love cars, but it's a major source of mortality for young people uh, and, and, and so on. Um, we love each other, but 60% of people who are killed by other people actually move to them. So, so while we're on that subject, um, we've talked a lot about the benefits of um, owning an animal. But um, I know you, you know, you spent the first part of your career kind of focusing on the dangers of animals. And um, I, you know, most people know about the basic dangers. They can bite you. Um, a lot of people worry about newborns and and dogs, especially, right? Um, but I just wonder if there are some um, interesting connections you've made with maybe ne negative aspects of owning a pet? Right. Oh, um, those, those places like Penn and here that have animal behavior clinics see a lot of that because uh, part of the animal's misbehavior is this mis mismatch. And you know, one might even, and yes, we see this all the time. And, and I have I, one of my areas of study and graduate student working on is on uh, uh, fatal dog bite and, and pit bull legislation. Yeah, but there's a, and it's not surprising that things that are important have this uh, this role. Uh, dog bite is, is incredibly common. Uh, not not fatal dog bite, but in general, kind of uh, it, it's right up there with with uh, sports injuries uh, for young people. Uh, it's the second or third most common reason that now people have to go to emergency rooms. Um, it's um, it's a very, but it's one of those things that we we balance. Uh, most of us don't want to live in a bubble with no dangers at all. So we do drive in cars and play sports and do things that have a certain low frequency of, of you know, dangerous feedback. Um, and there are low frequency diseases, uh, worms from dogs, uh, obviously lots of uh, low frequency salmonella and, and, and you know, other diseases. A little concerned about some of the new emerging diseases if, if they get into the dog population. So far, we've not seen that too much. Uh, but that is something that there is also an area of legitimate study. And just because something is not perfect doesn't usually mean we don't want to do it. Not usually, no. <laughs> um, do you have pets, by the way? I'm sure you have pets. Yeah. We have, uh, and I have two dogs now, two sort of uh, rescue mutts. But it's interesting you mention that because while I've, I've worked with, with animals all the time, both, uh, my very first dog is only when I moved to Indiana. It's not part of my uh, uh, growing up. Why is that? Because I'm low income, high density living in, in New York City. Hmm. Very few of us had, had pets, especially hmm. dogs. Uh, because it's apartment living. You know, the discretionary income was, was tight. Um, so it's just not part of the culture uh, at all. Um, so uh, that doesn't mean that I wasn't fascinated by it. I used to walk to the dumps, just being a, new, a male in New York, you couldn't afford to have a driver's license because the insurance was high. So I used to walk to the Jamaica Bay dump to watch birds and rats. Um, so, um, and I was always happy to you know, see dogs or visit people with dogs, but this was not part of my, my life at all. Um, and while I used to get kidding about that, I, I sort of remind people that 
the very famous behaviorist George Schaller wrote several books on gorillas without ever owning one. For those people who are interested in, in human-animal interaction studies, human-animal bond, there's a wonderful, absolutely free uh, collaborative platform where you can get resources and do blogging and see videos, and it's called HaberyCentral.org. It's a not totally free. Uh, Habri, H-A-B-R-I, stands for the Human Animal Bond Research Initiative. And Habri Central uh, is a, uh, a funded, non-profit funded uh, collaborative platform to help people, because our relationship with animals is not just academic. There are lots of people like volunteers and shelters and, and nurses and social workers who are involved in this area that don't have the same kind of access that those of us in academics have, where almost every uh, journal is available to us electronically. Uh, so have a recycle to really help those who are interested in it. Uh, and you might just, uh, I think our, um, your listeners might find it kind of interesting. Uh, and it's very no advertising or anything like that. Again, that was Dr. Alan Beck, professor of animal ecology at Purdue. Thanks everyone for listening. For Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Join us next week, and in the meantime, enjoy the afternoon, spend lots of time with your pets, and most importantly, keep on grokking.